As you know, the On Farm podcast is brought to you by the team at Seen and Heard PR and Marketing. And I just wanted to remind you about a new initiative that's happening here called On Record. On Record is a project to preserve voices, stories and memories for the future with your very own audio recording. So we're recording memories of rural life. We're travelling around Scotland, working with families and organisations to capture precious voices of family members or staff members or long-serving office bearers to preserve those for posterity and sometimes for historical value. So if you think this project is something that you'd like to be involved in and maybe you have a grandparent or a parent that you'd like to capture on audio while you can, please do get in touch. You can find out more at onrecordmemories.co.uk. It's Monty here for this edition of the On Farm podcast. Today we're going to be focusing on the grain chain Specifically, we're going to be looking at how cooperation could help farmers take some of the power and profits back from further up the chain, back into their own hands. We're having this conversation against the backdrop of turmoil, and I actually fear that when harvest gets underway, it could become outright panic. For a bit of background, in November 2020, one of the major players in the malting barley chain bought out one of its closest rivals. The number of active buyers competing on price to buy malting barley from farmers shrunk significantly in the main barley belt of Scotland. Even prior to that, the market was controlled by such a small number of buyers. And so losing one and consolidating the power of another made many farmers uncomfortable to say the least. That discomfort was replaced by feelings of fury, panic and futility when another of the big grain merchants, again a significant player in the malting barley market, something like 200,000 tonnes annually, recently crashed into administration. That's the background. Now, to set the scene for today's episode. NFUS hosted a webinar a few weeks back to cover the legal aspects around supply contracts, etc., regarding the recent merchant collapse. The following week, SEOS and NFUS teamed up and hosted a second webinar. This time they were looking at how farmers could potentially cooperate to better protect themselves and better handle their grain in future. For this episode of On Farm, we're picking up the baton. With the support from SEOS, we're going to explore these issues further and particularly look at them from the farmer's perspective. Let's bring in our three outstanding guests and get cracking with this important chat. I'm Donald Ross. I farm in Easter Ross in the Highlands of Scotland and we farm cattle, sheep and cereals and I am a former chairman of Highland Grain. My name is Rory Christie. I am a dairy farmer and pig farmer in the southwest of Scotland. I'm also chairperson of the Milk Supply Association and vice chair of SOS. I'm Ali Brunton. I'm from a mixed farm in the East Nuke of Fife. We have sheep and cereals. And I'm currently the chairman of SAYFC's Agri and Rural Affairs Committee. Ali, I'm, I'm going to come to you first because my take on the geography of this is you're kind of central to the trading area of Alexander Ingalls and Son who have gone into administration where you farm in Fife. So what's your take on what's been happening? Yeah, so where we are um, in the East Newark, we are kind of bang in the middle, really. Fife sits between Ingalls, uh, south of the Forth and Taygrain on the north side of the Tay. It hasn't affected us personally. We don't have or haven't dealt with either for a number of years. 
majority of what we grow goes for seed um, to Dodds at Haddington. But likewise, if it had been Dodds that had gone into administration, then we would have been um, in a pretty nasty situation. But yeah, I think the whole incident just highlights the risk that we have when working with uh, or dealing with a third party, um, that sort of middleman. It's just such a risk for us. Yeah, we are a price taker and they set the price and we don't have a lot of other options other than to deal with them. And we put a lot of trust in them to give us the best deal possible. And um, yeah, unfortunately in this situation, it's backfired for for some. Ali, how are you placed and, and how, what's your understanding as far as your neighbours, the farmers in the wider area are placed for for storage and capacity, etc. this coming harvest? I know down here that, that is a real concern. Um, not a huge chance to catch up with um, a lot of neighbours, but I think it will be a concern for most. That a lack of um, ability to offload at the minute. The price has been quite good. There might be other avenues for them, whether it's... It just depends how it's tied up in contracts. But yeah, it's definitely a concern for um, a lot of people in, in East, North East Fife. There's 200,000 tonnes, or just over 200,000 tonnes of storage at the moment that's out of the grain chain. So that is not available to farmers this coming harvest. It, it may come in, you know, someone may buy the sites, but at the moment there is potential for harvest on farms with no drying and no storage capacity who would normally put it into the stores we're talking about or or indeed a another store you know that's 200,000 tons missing Rory I'm going to bring you in slightly tangentially to that because you are um chair of the the milk supply association and your take on that is is marketing am I right so you deal with the the middleman in terms of marketing and negotiating the best price there's the nub of the grain thing though it's not just about the market and negotiating the price there is a logistical challenge there yeah it is similar we have a fresh product it has to move every day regardless so it is the same problem maybe more so for dairy so while msa the milk supply association represents um the farmers on 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 more than price because it's it is logistics it's Ensuring the relationship works well with the buyer as well as uh, negotiating the price. What can these people do? They find themselves with no buyer and, and no storage. Well, there's one thing they could do. They, they, they need to find trusted help. And to turn to the co-op sector, that, that, that is the one solution. Because co-ops, remember, a measure of their success is an increasing the number of members so turning to those co-ops and asking, can I have help in my time of need, becoming a member and getting all the solutions that co-ops will provide will be a great thing for both the co-op and for the farmer who gets the solution. Back in the 90s, our business lost out to 100,000 quid to a, a pig breeding bankruptcy. And um, we weren't selling through cooperatives or buying through cooperatives at that time for our pigs. It was all independent selling. And our business... That was the start of the rot. You know, we were pretty successful for a long time. And uh, we had to weather a big storm in the 90s for the collapse of big industry. And that 100k has never been recovered. It was the start of a massive wobble for our business. We should not underestimate how serious this is for our industry. Donald, I'll bring you in on that. 
you you've experienced working with um, Highland Grain both as a, a member, a farmer, supplier, and indeed from your involvement on the board. But there is an answer there, is there, um, through the likes of Highland Grain? Well, Highland Grain's forty-one years old, and it started out very small. Started out with five members and four thousand tons, and has grown over the years to eighty-five members and forty to 45,000 tonnes of malting barley, specialising in malting barley. And that's probably one of the key things I would say is, I mean, commodities are all well and good, in my opinion, but I think you really need a specialisation and you've got expertise. Yes, you can do little bits on the side to help members out. The, The business is there to keep the members, to help the members. If they have a problem, yeah, we can sort that out. We can supply Green Co with wheat. We can supply United Oilseeds with um, oilseed rape, but you've got a specialisation there. And I think that's that's probably a key thing, and for it for everyone to to think about. You've got key expertise there. I think if a, a business is going to take a broad brush approach, especially when it's starting out, then you're going to please no one. We just heard from from Rory, and uh, albeit that it's it's twenty odd years ago, thirty years ago nearly, um, he lost a hundred thousand pounds. We can't get involved in the specifics on on this on this program, but we're hearing of people who are likely to lose significant sums of money of that magnitude, maybe even more in the current situation. What's the protection if you're in a co-op, Rory? How do you feel now about about what you're doing with both pigs and milk now that you're dealing with co-ops rather than, for want of a better word, middlemen? Well, most of the time, the milk one's a bit different, but we, we sell our pigs to Scotland um, and, that, and that's always been a great success. Yeah, and you've got guaranteed payment. You have the, the insurance that uh, we all pay towards to, to secure a financial return. So that in itself is risk mitigation. So a lot of what the co-ops are doing is not necessarily obvious. It's risk mitigation for their members. By pooling resources, you get risk mitigation that you couldn't get as an individual. And actually, it's the relationship building that they do with the customers. It's the professionalisation it's the, the guys that you're employing in your co-op to work on your behalf, understanding the, who the, the goodies and the baddies are and um, putting in place that uh, the relationships to ensure you don't that your, that your uh, business is not put at risk. You know, ultimately, it comes down to the fact that there's no one running around in, in fancy cars and, and taking money out of the grain chain, as it were, and putting it elsewhere. There's no one doing that in well, co-ops. co-ops. You know, the co-ops there. The co-ops pay everything they can to you, whereas the middleman pays you what he has to, what he can get away with. It is in the co-ops constitution to pay, to act in the best interests of the members, to pay you every bit it can. The downside is the farmer members have a duty as well. They must ensure the governance of their co-ops is good. If the co-ops fail, just like other businesses, and believe me, the failure rate of co-ops is much lower than that of, uh, of private businesses, but they only fail because of poor governance. And it's the farmers, the members, who have to ensure that that governance is right, so they need to engage. But they're not. So, they're running around fancy cars, and if they are, it's because the farmers have let them do it. That's a key point there. A co-op gives you everything it can back. So... Ali, in your personal view, why are we not seeing more cooperation in farming? I know we see high levels of cooperation, but what's stopping those who aren't cooperating? Cooperatives probably don't suit everyone. Um, they probably Some people will produce a product that might not be right, marketed through a cooperative. But there's 
a lot of farmers who quite like to gamble on the market and they're constantly checking the futures and uh, it is a gamble essentially. It's a gamble. Yep, and they're trying to get the most for their product by um, predicting the futures. I think there'll definitely be a lot more people considering their options, but I think all majority of sectors within agriculture it is a gamble. Um, we're growing seed, we're putting a variety in the ground one year that we're hoping there's going to be a demand for the following year. Same with malting barley varieties and um, we have a lot of neighbours grow a lot of oats for PepsiCo, Quaker Oats and it's the varieties that they accept are constantly changing. So you're growing a variety one year that is accepted and the following year it could be rejected. It's a constant gamble. I do think there is a bit of um, competition between neighbours. They're always almost trying to one-up their neighbour. One-up the neighbour, does that make you less likely to want to work with the neighbour in some respects? Is that what, how you see it? I think for some people that probably is their line of thinking, which in the long run they're doing themselves a disservice and the whole industry a disservice because they're not really tackling the people that are screwing them over. Whether that be the so-called buyer, the middleman, the merchant, or even the politicians, we're not tackling that by not working together. Were you coming in on that one, Robbie? I just think we have to be careful. We have to assume actually everybody's trying to do their best. Okay, that's the starting point. Everybody's got a different risk profile. Some people actually may be very good at um, trading their grain and they've done all the, the background work and they've, they've, uh, they've got the skills or they feel comfortable with the skills and they, they manage their own risk. But a lot of people are absolutely on the tractor working all day because, because basically margins are getting tighter and tighter and we're asked to do more and more and there aren't employees in farm that there used to be. And so time is a, is a very a very short resource. So then it's about, well, actually, um, how can I employ professional people to work on my behalf to, to market my green for me? Um, and it's then about thinking about, well, I'll employ the co-op who, is, who will act in my best interest. It is hardwired into those people to do that for me. Or we'll give it to somebody else who's going to give them a margin because it's their pal. Or, or at least he comes over like that because he's been trained as a salesman, effectively. There's two distinct differences there. Now, I would like to see the guy who's got the skills, who understands the industry of grain trading and risk, to actually, if he's got time, get involved in the local co-op and use those skills there. Because if we all stand together, then the old phrase, whatever it is, united we stand, united we fall. But we are micro-businesses, absolutely tiny in the face of, of these monster global businesses. In Scotland, we only have two pre-processors for grain, um, the maltsters. Now, I, I would not pretend to be any expert in this. I don't actually know much about it. But we've got two buyers, um, maltsters, and then very few. Th th this company that's went, went to bankrupt is buying a huge percentage of the grain in the country. So very few hands the money's traded in. And therefore, so we actually need to come together, stand together, to pull our skills, to make sure that we can cut a deal with these, these monsters and big whiskey distillers who are buying the rest of it. Start with, everybody's trying their best, but maybe there are other ways to skin a cat. Donald, do you want to tell us a little bit more about how you've skinned a cat with Highland Grain? Basically, we joined in 1997, and, and like Rory, I had a pig disaster too. And we'd had a bad year that year. Ramularia was um, hired into the, the barley. Yields weren't great. 
and we were getting, I can't remember what the price was, and Highland Grain were paying 20 quid more. And they were letting members come in at, um, I think it was £40 a tonne over five years. So it was £8 per tonne per year. And that encouraged us to do it. Now, if you're to do it now, I think we are now £100 a tonne, but I couldn't actually say because I'm two or three years out of out of doing the chairman's job. And we, we joined up and we've had good years, we've had less good years, but there's always been an average. And the average has always been pretty close to our benchmarks with uh, Baird, Simpsons and uh, those other guys um, that, are, that are buying malting barley. Um, I mean, there's other, been years where we've been 30 quid above the, the, um, the market during the late um, noughties. Um, there was two or three years where we were making serious money above the market. Um, and that was, that was that down to good marketing and uh, being close to the customer. And it comes and goes. Um, we've been relatively successful in, up in our tonnage. I mean, when I joined the board in 2006, we were doing 25,000 tonnes. When I left the board, we were doing 42, 43,000 tonnes, and it's crept up slightly since then, mainly with the, the increase, in, increase in yield that we're getting, and we're able to um, sell every grain of grain because we provide a good service. We um, stream the barley. Now, you'll notice that I'm actually saying we. That's a key point in, yeah. in, a, um, in, a, in a co-op. If you're a cooperator, and I am, I am new, numerous co-ops and have been for years, it's our business. And we want the best for it. You choose the best people and you try and take them in and indoctrinate into your way of thinking. It's up to the board to point them in the right direction. We were very lucky in that we had one chief executive for 39 years. He was very opinionated. He was very good. Um, He set the business up. But you can get comfortable. And he was bright enough to see that we were very comfortable as a board in 2006. And he had 12 years left. So he slowly handed over more responsibilities to the board. I mean, that, and then you get SOS, we started doing training. You would go to, chair, I went to chairman's meetings um, in Perth and you get to know the other members at chairmen's of boards. So, I mean, it, you go from running a business where there's two people um, and you're, uh, yourself, myself and my father at the time, or him running the business and me being the loon. And then you go to a business where you've got 10 people and then you're talking to people who are running large businesses, you know, but everyone's equal. Every member is equal. That's the other thing. Um, I could be selling 100 tons to Highland Grain or I could be selling 3,000 tons to Highland Grain. One member, one vote. Now, that's a wee bit rambling statement there. No, I like that. I like that. I think I think that's that's key. You, you, you know, you're talking about the fact that you get the best people. You incentivize them. They, they know what they're doing. But ultimately, it's you and your team of directors who are the farmers that are in the driving seat. Rory, do you want to talk a little bit more about your co-ops that you're involved in and, and, and your experiences, you know, how it benefits you as a farmer? Yeah, well, the MSA, which I was a founding member of, along with other five or six other guys. Um, Can I come in on that? Because yeah. that, that, that was because you formed that, didn't you? You were key to that because you were being, for want of a better way of putting it, you were being screwed over by... The, the power of the milk buyers out there. Was that, is that a good way of putting it? It's a brutal journalist, journalistic brutal. way of putting it. <laughs> the, the milk supply chain is famously competitive and transactional and difficult. Myself and good friend Peter Simpson were on what was sort of called the, the, the supply committee, which was um, a hand-picked group of farmers who would engage with the processor to 
you know, talk about milk price. Pete and I quite quickly realised that we, we need to be independent here. We can't, act, this was a key bit, we, we didn't actually have the mandate of all the farmers. So we couldn't walk into a meeting and say, the farmers say they need a better milk price. Pete and I thought we did. But we hadn't been elected. We had to make it independent, which we then went to help. Well, we went for help from SOS and they, and they gave us the constitution, the basis, the programme of change, how to do it. And so eventually the Milk Supply Association as it was then, it's now a co-op, still called association, but it's now a co-op, was formed and we went out and um, we had to make a pitch to the farmers and a pitch to the processor and get the backing, the key, get the mandate so we could speak on behalf of the farmers. So now when we go into meetings with uh, any concerns or to negotiate the milk price, more importantly, we, we know that we have the mandate of the farmers behind us. But actually, it's a really interesting point, this problem we have in the grain industry at the moment you see problems in, in co-op, everybody says, oh, it's for the small farmers, for the guys without any clout. And the big farmers often feel they're uh, sufficiently big enough to cut themselves a better deal. Aye, that's right, till it goes wrong. That's one of the things about what's happened with the current situation, as I put it. It doesn't matter if you're big or small. If you're big, you're probably worse affected. You're probably bigger, you know, you're, you're, the effect on you is bigger. Um, mass, massive sums involved. You know, the, the bigger guys have been stung just as much as, as the little guys. Yeah, but so the difficult stuff, it's difficult for co-op chair people or, 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 or executives to put value on is the bit that gets done behind the scenes. At the Mill Supply Association, we've spent years working on contract, utterly boring and involves very expensive uh, lawyers. And luckily, my members have backed our board to go and spend their, uh, their member fee a lot of it on lawyers, checking that the contract that we have with our buyer is fair, or fair as it can be in the supply chain, sound, and will give them some base protection. Now, you can't say, oh, that's added pence per litre to the, the milk price, but if something goes wrong, as has done in this green situation, that donkey work's been done and you get protected. No matter how big you are or we are, you get equal protection. And in fact, the bigger you are, the bigger your loss likely. And so the protection's there. And that is one of the key things that a co-op will do. Make sure that the, um, the contractual work is, is there to protect the farmer from these kind of fallouts. And, and we do lots of that kind of work behind the scenes uh, to ensure that um, our farmers are protected and that terms and conditions are good. There's so much more than just milk price. Now, uh, not that I want to slate my fellow farmer, but we're very good at understanding the price of everything. And sometimes not so good at understanding the value of things. Ali, I'll bring you in on that. Ultimately, forget about merchants, even for a moment, park the co-op side. But we're only dealing with a couple of big buyers in the malting barley chain. We're only dealing with a couple of big buyers for the end product. And ultimately, we're dealing at the top of that chain with something that is Scotland's Stoke the UK is one of the biggest exports. We're dealing with 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 whiskey. There is there's massive value in that chain. It's not coming back down to where it needs to be at the at the producer level. Is this whetting your appetite to maybe cooperate and and, and try and grab more of that value? Oh, definitely. I've I've never been against a cooperative. I think it's the benefits uh, there to see. You can spread the risk and better compete essentially as as a team. Just touching on your sort of the whiskey industry there. I think I heard on the news yesterday that um, 
with the proposed deal and the no tariffs for the whisky industry, that's an extra six million a year that the the whisky industry will save. I mean, is any of that six million going to get passed on to us? I don't think so. Ali, putting it in putting it in context, it's like three pence a bottle. So they are celebrating for the sake of three pence a bottle. It's it is absolutely minuscule for them. But you know, actually, if it's six million quid, if that could filter back down into farming to even even if it was to you know to be spent on 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 helping to set up a co-op or whatever it's that puts it in perspective doesn't it 6 million seems a hell of a lot to you or i but it's 3 pence a bottle of whiskey it's not the average australian buying a bottle of whiskey is going to not even notice the difference no and yeah i mean that that's never going to get filtered down to us um and i think the monsters uh, we've not had a huge deal with monsters but well, you're actually you. You see, there, there's the thing. You're actually right at the start of yeah. the chain because whereas maybe your grain ultimately is seed and it's not going to the maltsters, you're at the whims of the maltsters because whatever variety they choose is what they want that year. Whereas you've sown the grain effectively two years previously. Do you not think that there's scope there, right there, for cooperation? So the seed is grown which is what they agree to take as a variety from the multipliers, i.e. the malting barley growers, in you know two years' time. It, it would just make sense, wouldn't it, to, to, to work harder down the chain or work more efficiently, effectively together down the chain? Well, yeah, I think, I think it's important that they work with us. They have to work with us. I mean, we are providing the product for them to produce an export to the rest of the world. Without us, they wouldn't have a product. I'm going to throw this to Rory. Because he talks about this in um, a previous edition of the On Farm podcast. He talks about the fact that it's about power. And in a way, you say they have to work with us. That's the issue. We've got no power to make them want to work with us. How do we give them, How do we get some power to make them listen to us? We should challenge ourselves. Do they need to actually work with us? Can they make Scotch whiskey without Scotch grains? And I guess if they're pushed, they could. But let's look at it a different way, and this is just for discussion sake. They're capitalist companies that need to make money. So if we can present a case that they can make more money by working with us in cooperation, then they're much more likely to do it. Who are you going to solve for? Always think about who you're solving for. You've got to solve for your member and or your customer. So we need to solve for the, for the maltster or for the, uh, the distillery. And we also have to sell, solve for ourselves, for, for our members. We'll make them more money, guys, by working with us, but we'll also make ourselves more. And if we made the Scottish industry stronger and we ensured the seed barley growers' future, because we all work together to secure each other's future, and we therefore increase the gross um, sales of Diageo or somebody, because they found working with professionals easier. So today... For instance, in our co-op, they'd have, um, like Talos, the people we sell to, they'd have to work with 124 individuals, whereas now they work with, they've got one group of people, one board, uh, talking to them. Now, similarly in the grain, take all those guys together, present a professional front, and, and, and work with the buyers like that. I mean, this is happening already. Look, East of, Farm, East of Scotland farmers, you know, tremendously successful. Guys in the north, tremendously successful. So it's being done. And actually, the challenge for co-ops today, and this is, um, I'll probably be shot down for this. Well, let's see how you handle this problem we have in the grain trade in Scotland now. 
There's the challenge for the co-op sector, is to help sort it. And I think the expertise is out there. The co-op sector, certainly the, the, the green side of it, would be happy to help and get, get things going. But I mean, you need a critical mass and you need the guys on the ground, in the borders, in the east of Scotland, wanting to actually do this, wanting to actually physically invest their money into a business and give the commitment to the business. That, that's what it is, it's commitment. You say, I'm going to supply 500 tonnes of prime, fantastic malting barley every year for the rest of my days. And at the end of the day, I will have a, a capital account that has actually got money in it. I, I've got something that potentially I can retire on. You get your people in on the ground, decent people, and you get help from the co-ops that are already there, um, the likes of Easter Scotland, the likes of Highland Grain, to get it going. Because these guys will be happy to, happy to help. I mean, I'm, uh, well, I, I mean, I'm sure they will be. Get help from SOS as well. There's lots of information out there and there's lots of good guys within it. But um, if, they, if they can set it up and take it forward, um, or if, uh, the members, the new members, take it up and take it forward, that's the important part. You need to get decent, good-headed cooperators to take it forward. What the key bit you're saying there is there's a requirement for leadership. Yeah. There has to be leadership of, among the farmers that's all, that they're in trouble and the ones that aren't in trouble for that matter, in case trouble's coming to them too. But it's leadership. Stand up and be county, guys, and go out and seek the help. SUS did not come to me. Nobody came to me with my, their hand out saying, eh, oh, Rory, why don't you set, we want you to set up a co-op. We went to them. We had a problem, we went and sorted it. And we got a group of guys together with common vision, and we made the steps to set the business up, set the organisation up, and, and we've gone from there. But similarly, I'm also throwing a challenge back to the cooperative sector to do everything they can to ensure that goes forward. The, the real, if you like, tragedy of this situation, quite apart from the money that's, that's been lost, is the fact that we're only, what, six weeks, two months, whatever, away from harvest, and there's 200-odd thousand tonnes of storage out of the system. There are people who cannot store grain or even dry it on farm who rely on that storage. Now, I, I I love this discussion so far, and I I firmly believe that there's there's going to be a co-op emerges um, to try and deal with some of that grain in the longer term. But the issue right now is that two hundred thousand tons of storage sites, they're for sale just now. They could be bought by anyone. I would say they are likely, in some instances, to be bought by non-grain, non-agricultural interests because they could be prime development sites. So that storage is lost in the short term and potentially lost in the long term. That is a real concern. Is there a way that we can that we can help in the in the immediate short term? What what's the answers? First of all, the problem has to be quantified. How would the two hundred and two thousand come about? How is it understood? You're right. The, the Edinburgh side in particular probably sold for for some other kind of warehousing. But um, a strategic plan needs to be come up with, one to quantify the problem and in the various different um, types of storage, short term, medium and long term that's required and then um, there has to be a, a working group or party of people got together to, to solve the problem and pretty damn quick. So let's quantify yeah. the problem, put a team together to sort it and um, get the help that, that is required 
So this is really about hoping that we inspire others who might listen to this podcast to, to do what, what's been said. Get out there and go and try and get your fellow farmers together. Go and try and get some help, probably from the cooperative sector, and try and take this forward. Donald, is there is there any capacity, as far as you know, in like, you know, Highland Grain, East of Scotland farmers, the, the, the existing co-ops within the grain world, is there any capacity at all to, to take up some slack here? I know from our perspective at Highland Grain, we're running um, at full capacity. We have outside stores that we use. Um, farmers have built sheds um, beyond the size of the, the land that they have or there are tatty sheds that we use as temporary stores and we rent in um, a couple of sites as well. Um, east of Scotland, I can't really comment on at the moment. Um, Aberdeen Grain have been running pretty full. Um, I just Overall, because there's very little margin in cereals and especially in the commodity side of stuff, sheds are tend to be old or have been sold or have been converted into warehousing um, because there's more margin in it. it. It's the nature of business that if you can make more money out of something else, then you're going to do that. Um, it's been neglected and it basically comes down that we've been put, we, we've been kind of pushed with our backs have been pushed against the wall and we're sitting now with a crisis on our hands and we we really need to come up with ideas. Ideas, I mean, that I can think of is to actually get farmer sheds tasks registered so that you can actually use the, utilise them. There will be farms with buildings they're not using um, and they will be able to do it. But there's actually, that's going to be at a premium because you've got, you've got to deliver the stuff there. You've got to store it. It's got to be looked after. Key point, looked after. And then... It's got to be loaded and taken off. So you're, I mean, in, in reality, weighed in as well. So that's seven, seven quid every time. So you're, you're looking at add, adding costs to the job. And that's not what any, anyone's wanting at the moment. I mean, it, you want to be minimising, shifting the stuff around. If you can store it on farm, please do that. Because, I mean, it, it, it will sort itself out, but it's going to need time to sort itself out. And you do not want to be a distressed seller. If you can get, get, if you can get a hold of a portable dryer, get a portable dryer, get it dried, get it into a store that's going to remain dry for the winter. There's all sorts of things can be done like that, but, I mean, they're, they're, who's going to do the communicating? Where are the portable dryers? You know, there needs to be a, a war cabinet put together to help sort this out. The more coordinated it is, the more the quicker the, the, the solves will come. We're actually pretty good farmers at, at doing these things in major crisis. Just to jump in, I think uh, long-term... Yeah, Ali, come in. I think long-term, if, if these sites are lost for development, you know, if they don't continue to be used for grain storage. Long term, there's an opportunity for the likes of a cooperative to work together to build grain storage. Because at the moment, we've seen the price of steel and the price of concrete has gone through the roof. So for a smaller farm, it's very difficult to build grain storage yourself on farm. So to work together, you can build a bigger site with the handling equipment and drying facilities for it all and spread the cost. Yeah, yeah. Again, we're we're sort of the victims of just the 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 low commodity price, aren't we? Because these existing sites are sitting on land that may or may not go for like development. There's a stronger market force there potentially to take those away from agriculture, and it's because we have so little back from what we sell that we can't compete. We need to be building things where. There's no competition from self-storage or warehousing or the land's not going to be built over for housing or, or whatever it is. We need, we need stores um, on farms. Yeah, definitely. 
yeah, you've summed that up pretty well there. There is opportunity for us to all work together and build storage, as you said, on farm, um, away from... Anecdotally, the... anecdotally, it's not just the price. I'm hearing that you can't get a load of concrete anywhere for love nor money at the moment. Is that right? I think there's at least a two-week delay, a two-week waiting list for concrete to be delivered. Yeah. I know we're getting into the nitty-gritty of the job there, but, you know, if I had a straw shed that I wanted to put concrete on the floor to tip grain into, it ain't even going to happen this side of harvest. No, definitely not. And guys that are putting up sheds in preparation of harvest, it's looking pretty tight that it'll be ready for harvest because you've still got a month for the concrete to cure before you can drive on it and dump grain on it. I'm suggesting, actually, we need to find uh, emergency solutions in the very short term and then think long and hard about what's actually needed to make uh, our industry fit for purpose in the future. It's using existing facilities, making those existing facilities fit for purpose to pass the quality assurance that's required and doing no more than that in the short term. One, you're quite right, Ali, you know, Brexit, COVID, sewers, excuses. The supply chain can't actually deliver anything very quickly at the moment. So it's going to be farmer solutions. That's what it's going to be. And then we have to think about, uh, we need to think long and hard about infrastructure that's in our supply chain going forward. The fact that we're in this position in the first place must throw up some questions. How did we get to this position in the first place with so much risk in one person's hands? I'm going to try and... uh end on on some solutions rather than than looking at you know the, the the problems am i right in saying that here's an idea could be wrong could be right the biggest co-ops in terms of coverage of scotland if that's the way of putting it at the moment would be the machinery rings is that right you know there's the machinery rings covered pretty much every corner of scotland and certainly i would say cover the 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 the, the grain belts if you want to call it that of scotland yeah, I would concur with that. I mean, you've you're really looking at ring link, Tayforth, borders, Highland Machinery Ring. I'm I'm not really O'Fable. It's in the west. They they would be the largest people. They would have the most contacts. They they would have the most knowledge and who's who's got what as well. I suppose they'll have a note of um, what's where, and I'm sure they could add storage to that as well if they if they wanted. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, there's actually a shortage of bulkers, um, bulk lorries because again, there's no margin in it. There's always an extreme shortage of drivers currently. Let's be positive, though, as you said, Monty. Yeah, I'm putting my <laughs> head in uh, my hands We need here. an inventory of sheds. <laughs> because, God, we've got it hard. We need an inventory of storage from across the country. Understand what's lying empty. I don't know about other uh, warehousing and industrial warehousing that's it's empty uh, intervention yeah, stores of the past. And what, what happened to them? Are they still? Are they lying empty, or have they get some? They've got gen- up here. They've got cranes, cranes on them. and things like that. Uh, right, okay. Yeah. So somebody yeah. needs to pay the man to pull these cranes out and sit out, yeah. and sit well, outside. An oil industry. Yeah, an oil industry. Uh, maybe needs a wee bit of encouragement to help with that. But these are the kind of things. So just you think a bit out of the box. A crane can sit outside. Barley can't. Let's get the inventory. Let's challenge the co-op industry to help, and I challenge the farmers that are in trouble to show some leadership. And I ask for help and uh, I rally your fellow farmer to work with you to solve the problems. Nobody's going to do it for us. I think the machinery rings definitely have that ability to, they've got the contacts of the farmers, you know, within their own areas. 
they've got that ability to have on record who has extra storage, who has spare storage. So if a farmer five, ten miles from me is looking for extra storage and I have spare storage, the machinery rings where they should go. You know, they can link the two. Um, it makes perfect sense. Drying capacity, haulage, storage. They could put those jigsaws together. Yep. Well, I love that chat. Those are three guests that I would have on here to chat just about any agricultural issue and I think we would get some good insights from them. Very well done. Huge thanks to Donald, to Rory and to Ali. And I think it was great to look at it from the the immediacy of the situation in terms of the forthcoming harvest and for the longer term. This is a really worrying time for farmers and, and they really do need solutions. Hopefully we might have given some suggestions of solutions in this episode. Our usual reminder, On Farm is brought to you by our team here at Seen and Heard PR and Marketing. Also, um, sadly, I must say, this podcast is taking a summer break. So this episode is the last full On Farm episode for seven weeks or so. We'll still be popping up here and there on your social media. Look out for us, especially on Twitter, at on underscore farm UK. Thanks as ever for all your support. Anna and I will be back with you at the end of August. <laughs>